Hi, everybody. My name's Sandy Beach. I'm an alcoholic. How you all doing? Well, I want to thank the committee and Dale for inviting me, and um, I'm really impressed with all the work that this organization does. I get to speak at um, the international lawyers in AA and the um, pilots uh, with their groups, and um, you guys are just so involved in um, advancing the cause and the spirituality, et cetera, that um, you're way ahead of everybody else. And I think the lawyers heard about it, and I think they're going to sue you for being <laughs> too spiritual and making them look bad. And I think the charge is going to be impersonating a saint. So you better be on the lookout for the lawyers group. I got sober on uh, Pearl Harbor Day of uh, 1964, and so if I make it a few more months, I'll have my 40 years and be officially an AA old-timer. <laughs> and um, I have had the same sponsor since I came in, the guy that came to my house to get me, and it was his anniversary yesterday, and he had 41 years. And I don't know if that's a record of having the same sponsor or anything, but it's certainly been a, a wonderful gift that I'm really grateful for is the two of us, two Marines, um, are still around and still sober and uh, have been blessed by this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I go to these conventions, and they have these sobriety countdowns. And starting about eight years ago, a lot of times I'd be the last one standing. And I've made some observations over the years. The next thing that happens, you die. I mean, that's what. <laughs> so I've got a new policy. I'm sitting down at 25 years. <laughs> Somebody else can be the last one standing, and maybe it'll help me to live longer. I don't know. You know, years ago at the um, conventions, they didn't have, on the Sunday morning, now you go to any sort of a convention, and the Sunday morning speaker is labeled the spiritual speaker, like the rest of them aren't. And the first time I saw it, I had about seven years, and I was invited to something in Maryland, they sent me a brochure with the thing on it, and there it was, spiritual speaker. So I took it to Mr. AA in Northern Virginia, Buck Doyle, and I said, Buck, look at this. What does a spiritual speaker do? And I think it was the first time he saw it, too. So he thought for a moment, and he said, I think you're not supposed to swear. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'll try not to swear that much, and you can say you heard a spiritual talk. I was thinking last night um, about how significant doctors are in our lives, you know, teachers. Uh, I had a couple people in the Marine Corps, but um, doctors really are. And I, so I thought I'd start out for maybe the first 12 minutes and just tell you some uh, doctor instances. One of my best friends is Joe Persh. A lot of you guys know him. I would say he's, uh, you know, one of the pioneers in the field of alcoholism. 
And when he gives a talk, he will sometimes introduce himself. Hi, everybody. My name's Joe Persh. I'm an alcoholic abuser. And he talked about his early days in medicine before he really understood alcoholism and the lack of training that he had, etc. And he would quote the big book and he'd say, you stood at the turning point and I pushed you in the wrong direction. And that was sort of his perspective on this. And uh, so some of the recollections that I have and are it really uh, was kind of a, interesting because when Kevin was talking about how the uh, Navy had um, had this big awakening vis-a-vis alcoholic jet pilots, and I was the Marine Corps jet pilot, and how they sent them to treatment as soon as they came back. They said, get back in that plane. we got to save this valuable commodity. Well, that was not the decade that I was in. <laughs> I was in the decade before, so <clears throat> I'm going to... <clears throat> tell a couple stories about that. And then I want to talk about the program. But my earliest recollection, and it's funny how you have these things that build up and they talk about, you know, old ideas. And really that's um, probably what sobriety is all about, is getting rid of those. Yeah, because they're so damaging sometimes and they're with us forever. And we had a family doctor who, you know, back then they had the little black bag and they came to your house and his name was Dr. Logan, and he was very close friends with the family. And I thought it was wonderful until one day I was about eight years old. <clears throat> I was very sick. My parents asked him to come by, and he came in, and he looked at me for a while, and, he, and my arm hurt and my neck, and he wanted me to try and bend, and I ached all over, and I was sick. So he went out and he shut the door and they had this big conference with my parents and all of a sudden they came in and packed a little suitcase. Nobody said a word. It was it was like a mystery. And uh, we drove down to the New Haven Hospital and there was a nurse at the door and she just took me from my parents and went up to the seventh floor where all the polio victims were. And it was a polio outburst. And uh, no, they didn't. Everybody was frightened, and that's what I saw: was that my parents were frightened, the doctor was frightened, and nobody told me what was happening. And uh, so we could, you couldn't visit with anyone. You could yell from the window down to the street, you know. And I'd yell down, "I need another book," and then the book would show up a few days later. But I developed this sense that nobody was telling me what was going on. You know what I mean? So it had this sense of not trusting in the world. So I remember that had that little impact. And then um, I recovered from that with the Sister Kenny treatment. About 10% of us got the, the use of our limbs back. I had full, almost full paralysis in the right arm and leg. And uh, that Sister Kenny treatment worked on some of us. And I got the uh, use of everything back, but a lot of muscles atrophied in the back of my shoulder. But I still went on and uh, threw the discus and set some school records and felt good about that and graduated. And I got in the Marine Corps, and I heard about flying, so I signed up for flight school. And I had to take a lot of physical exams. You know, are your eyes good enough and depth perception and color blindness? And I was passing everything, and I was standing in line, and this doctor was coming through. We went from one room to the other. 
and uh, he was just sort of checking our bodies, and he was running his hand over my back, and he came to that hole where the muscles had atrophied, and I could feel his finger going in there, and I heard him say to himself, hmm, and then he slid his finger back across, and he went, hmm, and then he poked it, and he said to me, what is that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and it, there was this silence. And then he said, okay. And he went on to the next guy. And I was thinking, I never would have been a pilot if he had stayed a little bit longer on that indentation. Because uh, anything they could find to disqualify you, they start out with this huge pool and then it shrinks way down before you finish the 18 months of training. So anyway, um, the next thing that happened, I got to Pensacola, Florida, and was in pre-flight. And they did a lot of things in pre-flight, all the swimming tests and the, the Dilbert Dunker and airplane engines and Morse code and principles of flight, etc. And one of the things was the low-pressure chamber. And we got in the low-pressure chamber, and they showed us what happened up at altitude if you lost oxygen and how... The only sign that you'll ever have that you've lost your oxygen is you're feeling a little bit better than you were. You got, to, you got a little bit high and then you pass out. So you had to learn that as a warning signal because if you were flying a jet and you, the oxygen cut off and if you suddenly felt a little bit better than you were feeling, you had to dive down very quickly. Well anyway, they came down from 40,000 feet and my left ear didn't clear. And they went back up, and they came back down. They went back up, and it would not clear. And uh, so they told me, well, it'll clear tonight. And I went home, and it just was terrible pain. It really hurt. I could not get that thing to clear. And so I went to the doctor the next morning from my class, and um, he just said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm here. i got this thing in the low pressure. He said, do you know what malingering is? And I said, no, sir, I don't. And he says, it's a court-martial offense. You're supposed to be in the classroom. You're not supposed to be cut in class by coming over here. So I went back to the class, and that night at home, the thing bled and the drum ruptured, and then I went back, and another doctor took proper care of it. But that freaking ear lasted for, those troubles lasted about 40 years. And uh, I would fly, the flight surgeon and I had a special arrangement. I would come down from a flight and that ear wouldn't clear. And he would know what the deal was and I wouldn't even sign the plane in. I would just run over to his office and have the air hose ready. And I'd sit down in the chair and I'd get my glass of water and he'd put the air hose in the left nostril and block the right nostril and he'd say, swallow. And when I was swallowing, he'd hit that ear and it would go, boom. And the ear would clear. And then I'd say, I'll meet you at happy hour. You know, it was, <clears throat> it just became part of the deal was it running over to see him and then it would get infected. And then I had a tube in there for about five years. And then right near the end, I was getting, um, you know, I, I practically got thrown out of the Marine Corps. I lost my career due to drinking. I didn't get promoted to major and you have to leave. And I had 14 years. I loved it. It was my, True love. 
And somebody said, you know, you need a mastoidectomy on that ear. You might as well get it done free in the Marine Corps before you get out. So I had that done. And um, about seven years ago, I had 100% hearing loss in that ear. And they called it sudden hearing loss. <laughs> Which I had never heard of. And then I went and I started talking to other ear doctors. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's like a... Something happens in the bones, and it can happen, but sometimes you get it back, and I got 70% back. And since then, I haven't had anything happen to that ear. So it's um, been about four years of having a normal ear since that day in pre-flight. Um, the relationship with our flight surgeons was wonderful. I, they were part of the squadron, like Kevin was talking about last night. As a matter of fact, the last uh, carrier flying that I did was out of Pensacola. The doctors all got three carrier landings, and uh, they sat in the back seat of a plane, and they, they used the T-28 when I was there. So I got about 50 landings taking flight surgeons aboard the carrier. And this was um, just about near the end of my drinking, so I hope nobody's here that rode in one of those planes. Um, then there came a time when my alcoholism, and this is the part that I was talking about with the difference in policy, when my alcoholism was taking over and I was having withdrawal symptoms in airplanes, I would get up in the plane. I hadn't had any alcohol in 10 hours, which is absurd. That is putting yourself in about as bad shape as you can get if you're an alcoholic as to be in withdrawal. Hal Marley told me, you know, you're supposed to sip, sip, sip during the flight. And I'm going, oh, yeah, well, you Air Force guys are a lot smarter than we were in the Marine Corps. We, And so there was a lot of very bad symptoms happening. I had I've got extreme anxiety. I was losing my peripheral vision. I could hardly see the instrument panel. And I was developing a serious distrust of the pilot in the plane, which was me. There was just me. And um, so it was requiring more and more fortitude to even get in the plane. And I had a lot of close calls, but I never crashed or did anything. I went, flew one flight with uh, one hand on the ejection seat because I thought I was going to pass out. And how can you fly a photo mission when you're in withdrawals from alcohol? And my theory was that if I fell forward, the seat would fire, I would go out, the chute would open automatically, the plane would crash, problem solved. I mean, that was how I felt about the whole thing. But there eventually came a day when um, it was unmanageable. My whole body was coming apart. And I went to see a doctor. And, and this is before there was a disease of alcoholism in the Navy. You had to be diagnosed with something else. And I told him what was happening. He said, oh, my God, that's terrible. We're going to send you down to Pensacola and have all the experts look at you for two weeks. So I was down in Pensacola, and they're studying me. And the dentist, I remember the dentist is looking, and I, I wouldn't get dental work done because I didn't want to be near somebody who could smell my breath. And uh, so my teeth were in terrible shape. He said, God, I can smell whiskey all over you. And I said, well, I got drunk last night. 
And he said, well, I guess that explains it. That's probably why I smell whiskey. It was almost like it was this mystery illness that is so obvious, but no one is seeing it. You know what I mean? It's like the family denial. And so I went through the whole thing. I remember one time they got an old AD Sky Raider and they put a special chair, like just a regular chair like you're sitting on. They bolted it in there and they had all these wires hooked up. And I'm in the chair and they got all the wires hooked on me and they took the plane up and they did all these things and they're taking these readings. What is causing this guy to have these symptoms that he's displaying? And, of course, I had the trembling hands and the high blood pressure, disoriented. My eyes are all blurry. And I reeked of alcohol all the time and high blood pressure. And, I mean, it's today we can just laugh. <clears throat> so at the end of the two weeks, they uh, left it up to the psychiatrist to, to determine what it was. And um, it's a very formal ceremony the uh, decision of a special board of flight surgeons. And there was three of us waiting outside on a Saturday morning. And they called the first guy in. And when he came out, he was white as a sheet. And he didn't say anything. He just walked away. And so then it was my turn. And so I went in. And there was uh, probably about four Navy captains and three commanders, maybe a total of 15 doctors sitting around a green felt-covered table And there was one empty seat, and I'm telling you the truth, they had a human skull facing me where I sat. (laughs) And there was an amphitheater, and I guess it was medical students or flight surgeon students or something were all watching this proceeding. And uh, so they read the proceedings, and they said, the psychiatrists have determined that you have a childhood fear of flying. <laughs> you are, will no longer be allowed to fly. You are no longer a jet fighter pilot. And of course, it just killed me. It just, it, that was just everything I wanted to be. Is there anything you want to say in your defense? And I said, you know, I really want to keep trying. I just don't know how to, do, what to do with this and all that. And I said, we're sorry. That's the end of the case. Bam. So I walked out about white as a ghost and I went by the guy there. And I think the only thing I said to him was, there's a human skull where you sit. And then I kept on going. So I don't think I helped him very much. Now, I had a regular career. I I was a commissioned, uh, regular commission. So the Marine Corps had to find me another specialty. And I had to be retrained in something that I would then take for the rest of my career. And they selected me to be an air traffic controller. And um, I came down to Glencoe, Georgia, and went and made it through air traffic control school. And I remember the hardest part, somehow I got my mind going so that I could um, learn all this material and I could control the planes. But back then, they didn't have computers or anything. You had to fill out a strip on each airplane. There was a little metal holder with a a little paper strip in there, and you wrote all the little information about the plane. And my hand shook so much that it was that was the hardest part of being an air traffic controller was to try and fill that strip in. And my last year of drinking, I was in charge of an air traffic control unit in Japan. 
And fortunately, the senior enlisted man took one look at me when I got there, and they said, oh, Captain, good to have you. Here's your tent and your chair, coffee and all that. And they said, we do not want you to go anywhere near the radar. And so I never spoke to an airplane myself. So that was what saved me. And um, during that year, I lost 50 pounds due to malnutrition. And I didn't, I stopped hanging out with my friends. I didn't even want to go to happy hours, just trying to survive. And I drank um, vodka mostly with juice. And I was trying to use the juice as my food because regular food just wouldn't stay down. And I talked to some guys after I've been sober about 10 years. I ran into some guys who were in that unit, other officers. And they said to me, you know, Sandy, we knew you were dying, but there wasn't anything we could do. And, you know, the Marine Corps never leaves anybody on the battlefield. They go back and get dead people and bring them back. That's their record. They never do that. But they were willing to let a drunk die. You follow what I mean? Because nobody knew how to save them. And so they just, I remember him saying that, and I remember how deep I felt it, that we knew you were dying, but we couldn't do anything. It sounds ridiculous today, doesn't it? I mean, that somebody could say that. Anyway, the um, next uh, episode I had was uh, Grand Mile seizure. And um, I was in a school at Quantico, so they sent me up to Bethesda, and they were studying me as to what could have caused the grand mal seizure. And I was there in the, uh, with all the senior people in the fancy part of the hospital. And they were studying me. And uh, the seventh day, the DTs started. And the DTs are really scary. And mine came about because, I mean, there's, there's reality and then there's this what happens in our heads, I guess. But there was an admiral in the next room who was dying, and his son was a Navy officer. And I had rented a TV. They didn't have TVs. You had to rent them. And I had rented a TV. And he came in and said, you know, my father's dying next door. Could you turn that TV set down? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So I turned it way down. And then he came and said, would you mind shutting the door? The noise is still getting. So now I'm practically lip-reading. And uh, the doctors had been in earlier and asked me to count backwards from 100 by 7. And if you're in the condition I'm in, you get to 93, and then you stop. And even, even with a pencil and paper, I couldn't go. I would try to get in the 80s somewhere, and I... It couldn't be done, and it was very embarrassing to me. That, and, and he went and got another doctor, and then they both watched me try to do subtract seven from ninety-three. So that that was in my head. And then this kid with his father and turned the TV down, and that's when I went into my own world. But I didn't know it. And the guy's knocking on my door, telling me that the TV has just killed his father. And he's going to come in and get me. And I put a chair in front of the door. And I'm sitting on the bed and I'm going, what's he going to do, you know? And all of a sudden, the bed started rising up. And I said, God, he got under the bed somehow. 
and I decided to jump way up in the air and come down on his neck and break it. Now, I'm telling you, folks, this stuff was real. I mean, I'm like, and of course, when I jumped down, he was gone. I looked under the bed, he was gone. And um, that's when the doctors came back in. And they said, uh, there were six of them, and they said, we want you to comp backwards from uh, 100 with sevens. And if you don't make it, we have enough witnesses, then we're going to have to put you away forever. Something like that. And I went 83 or 93, and I couldn't do it. And I begged them for another test. Is there another test before you put me away forever? They said, yes, there is. There's a memory test. Come out in the hall, study this hall. We'll give you 60 seconds to study this hall. Then you sit in your room for five minutes. We'll come back. You tell us what's out there. If you're right, that'll be your test. So I went out, and there's a corpsman. There's three elevators. There's six other rooms, ashtrays, floor lamps, magazines. Man, I had that down. I'm sitting on the bed for five minutes. Magazines, elevators, corpsman, magazines, elevators, corpsman. And they came back in, and they said, well, and they all had pads. I said, magazines, elevator, corpsman, six other rooms, da, 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 and they all are going and shaking their head like that. I said, what? What are you talking about? And I opened the door. It was a photo lab was out there. There was the hallway was gone. And I had been in the photo squadron. I knew what it, and there it was. It had all dryers and enlargers and photos, aerial photos were spread out on the floor. And I had seen a Mission Impossible movie where they were driving the guy crazy by moving walls around. <laughs> so now I started thinking that this was the CIA and they were trying to drive me crazy in my room. And um, I started screaming. I said, how did you do that? How could you do that? You know, and, and they said, sorry, you got to go. And I said, couldn't I have one more test? And they said, yeah, memorize the photo lab. So I did the same thing, and they came back five minutes later. I said, three dryers that enlarger the photos of the chemicals. Mm, they're shaking their head, and I opened the door. I went out onto the flight line. The sun was out. The planes are taxiing by. The tower is right over there. And I, evidently, I started screaming, and um, I really was screaming and running up and down the halls, and they put me in a straitjacket. This is now reality is in and locked me up for six months. So that was um, how my alcoholism manifested itself in my story. And in the um, psych ward, I remember standing uh, for general rounds. I think that's done once a week, and all the doctors are out there, and I'm standing in my little blue pajamas and bathrobe, and this doctor comes up to me and he goes, um, so you graduated from Yale University? And I said, yes, sir, I did. He says, well, I graduated from UConn, the University of Connecticut. You don't think that's much, do you? And I said, oh, no, I think it's fine. <laughs> and he says, well, which one of us is locked up? Looks like the Yaley's locked up. <laughs> so that scared me a little bit. And then there was the, the German doctor. I thought he was German. And he would call us in for the group therapy, and he would go, we have a lot of problems in this room. 
and we're going to find out about all of them. And I could barely stay on my chair. And that doctor was Joe Persh. And we joke about this, that he was the psychiatrist in that psych ward that knew nothing about alcoholism, and I'm the alcoholic that he's helping. And in later years, all these wonderful transformations took place. But I eventually got out of there and um, joined AA, tried to make my comeback in the Marine Corps, but couldn't. I did well. I had um, got a big job down at Quantico. And I went for my annual physical. And this young doctor took a look at me and he said, Captain, you look wonderful. I'm looking at your record and I see all this stuff. I said, how, how could you be so healthy and so sharp and you're looking wonderful? I said, I'm in AA. I got eight months. He said, you got eight months in AA. He said, well, in your whole record, this is all junk about you losing your flight status for childhood fear of flying. We ought to straighten this all out. And I had a guy who wanted to champion my cause. I wish I still remembered his name, but I don't. And he, on his own, took all the paperwork and got whatever was necessary to send up the chain of command. And he even went up to my commanding officer and met with him at least ten times to get his permission to submit all this paperwork. And it went up to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and it was back in two weeks flat. And it was a letter from the Commandant to me, and I think it was General Shoup. It could have been General Green, but I think it was General Shoup. And it said, your request is denied due to chronic convulsions. And that was the end of the story. It was just like, we aren't going to have any alcoholics flying airplanes, sober or not. So that was sort of the dark ages. And then... I guess the Hughes Act got passed and people started talking about alcoholism and all of a sudden I had a friend of mine who was a bird colonel, got promoted to bird colonel with alcoholism on his record. And it was, uh, it was just remarkable what happened when the people at the top, Congress and whatever, started this thing. There will be alcohol programs, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But I'm going to tell you, that this is the end of my little medical stuff. In, um, I forget what year it was, but you all are familiar with Tailhook. That was the incident in Las Vegas when all the Navy and Marine pilots were out there and some um, congressmen's daughters got their butts pinched and uh, some admiral's daughter and there was all these episodes of these drunken pilots. Well, those things came into Congress and Congress just came down like this on, on, on the service Chiefs and the Commandant of the Marine Corps reinstituted a no tolerance policy that is still in effect. We went back to the dark ages in the Marine Corps in one week. One week. I sponsor a colonel at, um, in Tampa, you know, the McDill's, they're running the war out of McDill, and there's a bunch of Marines there. And this guy's a uh, reserve colonel, and he was, he was in charge of a reserve unit in Tampa, and, but he's very good at intelligence in the Middle East, and they kept calling him on to active duty. And he's got about seven years now. And um, 
he talks to some people about his alcoholism, but not everybody. And he finished his active duty tour, and he came back to his unit. No, he's visiting his, his unit. And the new commanding officer, he went in to see him. You know, he used to be his executive officer. And nobody was talking to him. And um, so he's going, what's going on here? And the other officers are just disappearing in rooms as he's walking up and down the hall. So he finally got his old executive officer, and he shut the door, and he said, Joe, what is going on? And he said, I can't be seen talking to you. In other words, it might affect his career. And so um, I guess I mention that because isn't that amazing that you could go that far back and just like that by reinstating this perspective on things? Now, there's a lot of people that are slowly trying to straighten this thing out. There are ex-Marine colonels who are working with some of the generals who really understand this because guess what happened? The suicide rate in the, in the Marine Corps started going way up because alcoholics were going to lose their career. And if they were in AA, they were afraid they were going to be found out. And so there was a lot of concern that was going on. So anyway, that's, um, I don't know, that talk last night just got me thinking about all these various things. So that's enough out of my story. So now I'll go back to the not swearing part. And I'll tell you about a um, meeting that we started in Tampa. I I just wanted to use that as sort of a springboard. Uh, There was some of the old-timers in Tampa said, you know, there's too many of these discussion meetings where everybody comes in and whines. So we got to start something different. I want to have a meeting where everybody comes in and we talk about the solution. So what can we do? So we sat around, brainstormed at somebody's house one night, And we decided to focus on the 10th step, which was how to live a day at a time undisturbed. And what you do if during the course of the day things come up to bother you, and what can you do about it, and why is that important, and what is all this stuff. And it's So when you come to the meeting, you come in with a um, situation that you've had, but you also come in with the solution to it, either that you've done or that you're going to do. And it's working real good. So we read out of these, um, out of that step, and there was a sentence that caught my eye one night. You know how you read the book and you see things that weren't there before? And it's just like, God, I I never really saw that. And, uh, you know, the tenth step comes right after the promises. And there's one of the lead-in sentences to the tenth step says, We are entering the realm of the spirit. And I'm sure you've seen that. Well, have you ever thought about where that is? I never drive down the street and never saw a sign, realm of the spirit, right over here, you know. So I started going, you know, where is the realm of the spirit? And uh, as you read that coming out of the promises and start reading this, it reminds me of the chapter agnostic. It's filled with verbs that are very unusual. As a matter of fact, have you ever looked at the verbs in the promises? Because these are spiritual verbs. They're not the traditional verbs that you would use if you were describing problem solving. Supposing someone come into your office and said, Doc, I'm having a terrible problem with self-seeking. You said, don't worry, it's going to slip away. Is that the verb you would choose? 
I have this terrible fear of people and economic insecurity. Don't worry, it's going to leave you. It's going to leave you. I mean, this is, what kind of a thing is that? That's the realm of the spirit. This, this is what a spiritual solution looks like. And then as you get more into the 10th step, it starts talking about the alcohol problem. And look at the way it describes the solution to our alcohol problem. We've been placed in a position of neutrality. You ever told that to anybody? Oh, you got, is that what you got? Don't worry. You're going to be placed in a position of neutrality. You haven't even sworn off. As a matter of fact, the problem doesn't exist for you. Can you imagine using that kind of discussion? Don't worry, soon the problem won't exist for you. That's how you describe things spiritually. It doesn't exist. Well, where is it? It's been removed. Now, is this a surgical procedure? You have the problem removed? What does that mean, to have it removed? It means that I'm going to place the solution to my problems in the hands of my higher power. Now, see, sometimes we read these things, but we just don't take them the way we're supposed to. When you look at the chapter of the agnostic, it has a sentence that tells us what the primary purpose of our big book is. I'm sure there's a lot of you book readers know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's a fascinating sentence. It says, the purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, and here comes the part, which will solve your problems. It doesn't say we're going to teach you how to solve your problems. It says you're going to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. The finding of the power solves the problem. That is the solution. So the whole purpose of AA is conscious contact. In that contact is the disappearance of all problems. That's what this, that's what the realm of the spirit is. Why are you working on your problems? Remember Chuck C, he would, I, I just remember, Anybody hear Chuck Chamberlain? Anybody ever know him or hear him? Yeah. Um, God, he was amazing. And I heard him and I heard him and I heard him. And then I um, still couldn't believe what he was saying. And one night I was, I was actually at his house. I got to sit in his chair and overlooked in Laguna and overlooked the ocean. And, um, and I said, Chuck, you say this in all your talks, but let me ask you, do you really mean this when you say, it's not your job to take care of your problems or to take care of your life. That's God's job. Your job is to do his work. And I remember going, man, that's a big leap, Chuck. That's a huge leap. And he gave me a story. And he said, there was this guy, he had a very important business appointment. He was a systems analyst. And he went to a noon meeting at the club, and he had a meeting at 2 o'clock with one of his biggest clients, and he needed that account desperately because he had to put food on the table for his children. And while he was there, a guy was starting to go into uh, have convulsions and was clearly needed to go to detox, 
And he was the last guy there. And this guy said, can you take me to detox? I really need to go. I don't, I'm, 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 I'm. He said, God, I can't. You caught me at the wrong time. He said, I've got to go on this appointment because this is how I put food on the table. And he struggled with this. And in the first story, he goes on the appointment. And he puts the food on the table for his kids. And he leaves the guy ten bucks to get a cab, but he never sees him again. He doesn't know if he got sober. He doesn't know if he got the detox. He doesn't know all that. But he knows one thing, that he thinks about this guy for the next 15 years. He thinks about the guy and he said, geez, isn't it too bad that I had to take care of my family, that I had to take care of me and wasn't able to take and go through that. And then Chuck went on and says, well, here's the other story. The guy said, um, I got this appointment at 2 o'clock, and I get, if I don't go there, I might lose this customer. And that's important to bring this in. But I'm going to take you anyway. So get in the car. And he got on his cell phone, and he called the customer and told him that Something very important had come up, and he wouldn't be able to make the meeting, but he could be there tomorrow, and the customer got mad and told him he was going to get somebody else, and he lost the account. And uh, made him feel bad because he knew that was a significant amount of money every month. And he got to the detox, and he's sitting in there, and they're asking him. The guy didn't even have a driver's license, and they're going, well, we can't admit him. Well, you could admit him under my, well, you know, I'll be responsible for him. And he's having this long conversation. And there's another guy there with his daughter who is uh, needing detox. And this guy is all freaked out. And so he's trying to calm him down and get this guy admitted into the detox, which he finally does. And then now they're dealing with the daughter. And so he's attempting to calm the daughter down and telling her, look, it's going to be all right. They have the good medicines they give you and things are going to be fine and um, they admit her and then he's trying to calm the father down and he's just going it's going to be alright I would recommend Al-Anon blah, blah, blah. I've been in AA for 15 years and it's a wonderful program your daughter's life's going to get turned around this thing can get straightened out etc if I can help you give me a call I'll be glad to show you what the meetings are and he gives him his card and the man looks at it and says, you're a systems analyst? He said, we've had a company in there that's doing a terrible job in my corporation. I've got about eight branch offices in St. Pete and Tampa and in that area. Could you come see me Monday? And um, Chuck was saying, you see, it's God's job to take care of you. You just go do his work and you'll be taken care of. And so when I look at that, now, of course, this is impossible. I mean, we can, we can understand that, but we're still, we're torn between the two lives that we have, the spiritual life and the material life, and it's very difficult to move in that direction, which is why we have meetings and keep reminding each other, and then we have an example. We will find someone who actually did that, and they will share their story, and then we can slowly keep moving in that direction. And I was trying to think about what the spiritual path, you know, you've got to have analogies to talk about any of these things. What does the spiritual path in AA look like? I mean, what are the dynamics of moving along a spiritual path, growing constantly spiritually? How, how does that work? 
And the closest thing I've been able to come from my own experience goes back to flying. In the early days of flying, when I first started, they didn't have any navigation aids with needles that pointed at anything. It was the old radio range days, and you did all your navigating with your ears, and you would dial in a low-frequency radio range, and then you would listen for the Morse code to make sure you had the right radio station, which was near the airport. And then there were four beams that went out from that station, and you would identify which there was a procedure to figure out which beam you were near. And then if you flew that beam in, you would go directly to the airport. When you were on the beam, you had a steady signal that just went beep. But when you went off to the left, you got a da dit. You had an A and an N. You had a dit da dit da. So the way you knew where you were was as you drifted off the beam, you would hear the beam, but you'd also hear, uh-oh, I'm sliding over here. I have to correct back until I'm just hearing the beam. And then the wind would blow some other direction, and then you'd hear, oh, I'm over to the left. Now i got to correct back. You never just heard the beam. If you sat on that beam for three solid minutes, you assumed that the whole system was broken. It just doesn't happen that way. Life doesn't happen. The wind, the conditions, and the beam gets narrower and narrower as you get closer to the final destination. And I think that that's what the spiritual path looks like. We have to go off it to correct, to come back on it, to see. And Bill talks about pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. So when we find ourselves constantly encountering painful situations and we criticize ourselves, why do I keep screwing up? Why can't I just stay on the path? We're not supposed to be able to stay on the path, but we're supposed to listen to those signals. They are called disturbances. The spiritual path is being undisturbed today. The realm of the spirit is the now. And you can't be in the now if you're worried about tomorrow or angry at yesterday. So it involves a total getting rid of all those things so that we can stay in this undisturbed state that it talks about in the 10th step. And so the issue comes down to a new attitude about pain. You ever read that in the 7th step in the 12 and 12? Our attitude on pain was changed and we saw the tremendous value of painful ego puncturing, which allows us to come back to the path, admitting that we're wrong. And if the fault is elsewhere, we forgive so that we always end up undisturbed. And that, to me, is how that path works. And um, the difference that I have found between a new person in AA and an old-timer is how quickly the old-timer picks up the phone compared to the new kind person. If the situation hits me that I get, oh my God, what the heck was this? I just picked the phone up. I said, I'm I'm getting screwed up over this. Hello, Dan. I saved that. Oh, is that right? Okay, good. Yeah, I apologize. Thank. Boom. Gone. That's the end of that one. Now, if you're new, you wait about four months. 
Because you like to handle things on your own. I don't want anybody to know that I have any problems in the first place. I don't want to admit I'm off the path. I don't want to admit this has me totally screwed up and my head's going in a million different directions. So we struggle uh, way out there. It takes forever to get back. And so what I think is being suggested is the longer we're here, the more we have this system of getting undisturbed. And um, I came up with, you know, just all these things. What do you do when a driver does this? And I come up with all my own little techniques, if you follow what I'm saying. But my goal is how quickly can I get recovered and be undisturbed? And so the latest one I came up with, you ever been just standing, minding your own business on the street? And some guy drives by in a car and he might maybe not like your looks or something like that. And he just yells out, hey, you stupid jerk, you look ugly. And then he's gone. Sometimes that'll, sometimes that'll affect your mood. I don't know about you. And I have this thing, and it works every time. I shout out at the top of my lungs, how the hell did you find out? Which is a very funny response to his line. And now he's just the straight man. And so that's, that's my, you know what I'm saying? The whole point of this is the undisturbed is the spiritual path. And when we're undisturbed, we are a mini program of attraction. As we go through our day undisturbed, the dry cleaning lady is happier for our being there. The, when we pick up our prescriptions and they're late or they're this, we're the one person who says, that's okay, I understand, I'll be back tomorrow. And we're in the shopping thing and somebody has 15 items. We just stand there and go, so what? And we would just go through this. And so people feel this energy, this undisturbed energy. And as we go through our day, we are seeing the best in people instead of bringing out the worst, which is our old specialty. (laughs) And as we bring out the best, We transform the world that we live in. And we come home at night and you go, God, you know, today was great. I just kept running into nice people all day. And little did you know, you made them nice. So the power of all of this program is right in our own hands. And it all centers back on this realization that the primary purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. God bless and thanks for inviting me over. It's been a pleasure.